Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Rebecca Larson, owner of TutorsDynasty.com, and you have found my podcast. I'd like to start with a short apology. When I recorded part one of this series on Katherine Howard, I said it would be two parts. But to my surprise, there has been a lot more to cover than was expected. The last podcast covered Catherine's wedding night through Easter, or the end of March 1541. It was at this point in time that Catherine began to show favor to Jane Boleyn, Lady Rochford. Around the same time as Margaret Pole's unexpected execution at the end of May 1541, Queen Catherine was noticeably upset about her relationship with the king. She had heard rumors that he would take back Anne of Cleves and discard her. When Henry VIII heard about his sad wife, he informed her that she was wrong to think such things, that if he were in the position to marry, he would not choose the Lady of Cleves. How reassuring of him. Such a kind husband. The reason why Catherine was uber paranoid about Anne of Cleves at this time was because the rumors that instigated it all were that Anne was pregnant with the king's child. Catherine had not yet given the king a spare that he had longed for. Only four days after the unjust execution of Margaret Pole, the king and queen traveled to Westminster while Greenwich Palace was being cleaned, a task that could take weeks to complete. After Catherine's return to a clean Greenwich, her cousin Sir Edward Nivett was arrested for shedding blood in the precincts of the courts. The punishment for his misdemeanor was to lose his right hand. It is believed that Catherine spoke out in favor of sparing her cousin. Nivett had begged to have his left hand removed instead so he could still yield a sword in the king's army. It turns out that he was fully pardoned not long after, with a warning that if he did this again, there would be no reprieve. The Queen's household went back to their normal activities, which included music and dancing, two things Catherine enjoyed immensely. It was this atmosphere of drinking, dancing, and flirting that would begin to tear apart the Queen's household. Whether it was Margaret Douglas's secret affair with Catherine's nephew or Dorothy Bray sneaking about with the already married Lord William Parr, Queen Catherine was not performing her duty as guardian of her lady's reputations, to the extent that she was expected. It was about this time that Catherine also began to think about her former flame, Thomas Culpepper. They had had a disagreement on Monday, Thursday and hadn't spoken since. It was at some point after that event that Catherine decided to forgive Culpepper and once again speak with him. We don't see any evidence of their said relationship until Catherine sent one of her page boys to bring dinners to a sick Culpepper. This happened several times, and while it wasn't seen as anything wrong, she was towing the line of inappropriateness. Her actions would create her downfall. Everything changed during the summer progress of 1541. The royal couple's itinerary included 27 stops in just three and a half months on the road, as well as many public appearances. During all this, Catherine Howard was plotting to be with a man who was not her husband. 
At the beginning of the progress, the court left London and were headed north with their first stop in Enfield. A progress in the summer was not uncommon for the court. London was known to be unbearable in the summer. The heat and the smell of the Thames would often chase away the king. The trek to the north would be the first time that King Henry VIII had ever ventured past Boston in Lincolnshire. It took the king 32 years to greet some of his subjects in person. After stops in Enfield and St. Albans, the court rested in Dunstable. It was at Dunstable that Catherine Howard became the first queen consort of Ireland. As their trip progressed, the king and queen were enjoying themselves. Henry was noted on the 14th of July, quite possibly while they were still in Grafton, to have killed a great stag and two fat bucks. Food on their progress must not have been an issue because it is noted that Henry sent them to the mayor of London as a gift. It was also noted that the queen was in a good mood by the time they entered Northampton on the 21st of July. This was the first time on their progress that they had arrived to a place where Catherine had never been. Two stops later in their progress while at Loddington, Catherine gave her chamberer, Margaret Morton, a note that was to be delivered to Jane Boleyn, Lady Rochford. This letter was said to have been missing a seal and was not addressed, so not to know that it was sent by the Queen. When Morton gave the note to Rochford, she was told to relay a message to the Queen that she would have a message for her in the morning. The following morning, Morton went to retrieve the answer from Rochford and was greeted with a warning to tell Her Grace to keep it secret and not lay it abroad. Morton would not forget this strange interaction. The next stop in their journey was at Colleyweston. This was a former home of Margaret Beaufort, the king's grandmother, and then Henry Fitzroy, his illegitimate son. While no one had lived there since the death of Fitzroy in the summer of 1536, it was still in great condition. Catherine's apartments overlooked the garden, and she also had access with a private staircase to her rooms. After Collie Weston, the court moved to Grimsthorpe Castle for three short days. This castle belonged to the Duke and Duchess of Suffolk. The Duke was there to greet the group when they arrived. As the Queen's chambers finished unpacking for their short stay, Catherine asked her former bedmate, Catherine Tilney, to fetch Lady Rochford and ask if she had followed through on the Queen's request. Rochford told Tilney that she would bring word herself when it had arrived. This is another strange interaction that would not be forgotten. Apparently, the Queen and Lady Rochford had been discussing Culpepper throughout the lengthy progress. Rochford had also mentioned to Catherine that another Privy Chamber gentleman, Thomas Paston, had showed interest in the Queen as well. Catherine was not interested in Paston, but at this point she could not keep her mind off of Thomas Culpepper. On the 7th or 8th of August, the royal party left Grimsthorpe and traveled to the small market town of Sleaford. The manor house in Sleaford, where they stopped briefly, had previously been owned by Lord Hussey, who was beheaded after supporting the Pilgrimage of Grace. The following morning, they were on the move again. Roughly 10 miles outside of Lincoln, while the royal cortege ate, messengers were sent to Lincoln to inform those in charge that the king and queen were nearly there. Their entrance into Lincoln must have been something that Catherine had never experienced before. As they rode toward the city wall, Catherine could see a group of men in red robes. As she approached, also wearing red, the men bowed to their new queen. In a tent that had been erected nearby, the royal couple changed out of their riding clothes to those that they would wear as they rode through the city. Henry changed into an outfit made of cloth of gold, and Catherine wore a silver dress. 
Throughout the progress, Catherine carried out her public duties perfectly. Accounts of the tours written later refer to her as Henry's fair and beloved queen. Catherine was a flawlessly behaved consort, content to dazzle as a supporting player. Cloth of silver next to Henry's cloth of gold. Never pulling focus or openly pursuing her own agenda. Her first few months as queen had been considered a success. With all that being said, it was during their stay in Lincoln that Catherine began her late-night chats with Lady Rochford. Both Catherine Tilney and Margaret Morton, two ladies who had already been suspicious, were charged with escorting the Queen to Rochford's room. When they arrived at the door, the Queen dismissed her two ladies. The Queen and Lady Rochford then snuck to the back entrance of the apartments and waited for Thomas Culpepper's arrival. As they waited in the dark for Culpepper, a guardsman noticed a door was unlocked. It was the door the Queen and Rochford were waiting by. As the guardsman approached, Catherine and Rochford ducked out of view just in time for him to lock it again. Not long after, Thomas Culpepper arrived and picked the lock. The Queen was very anxious by the close call, but Culpepper was there to calm her nerves. The three of them returned to Lady Rochford's lavatory. This room was large enough for Rochford to sleep in the corner while Catherine and Thomas had fond communication. They spoke of their past lovers. For Catherine, it was refreshing to be able to speak freely with someone about her past with Mannix and Durham. Culpepper listened and appeared amused by her stories. In the meantime, as the hours ticked away, the Queen's household were very confused and suspicious as to why she would spend so much time in Rochford's room. Margaret Morton, who was already suspicious, checked to see if the Queen was back. When she returned, Catherine Tilney asked, Jesus, is not the Queen abed yet? At which Morton replied, Yes, even now, and went to bed. The Queen and Culpepper talked for hours. They finally went their separate ways at around 2 or 3 in the morning. The following morning, Catherine must have been tired, but she still had time to show her generosity while in Lincoln. Catherine had heard the story of one Helen Page, a local spinster who had been condemned for several minor felonies. While we do not know what Page's sentence was, we do know that the Queen felt moved enough by the story to ask the King to pardon her, which he did. That evening, Catherine, who was accompanied by Catherine Tilney this time, arrived at Lady Rochford's room. This time, she asked Tilney to wait outside. This was the night that Catherine Howard, the Queen, wife of Henry VIII, told Thomas Culpepper that she loved him. He reciprocated her feelings by saying he felt bound to her because he did love her again above all other creatures. As Culpepper left, he kissed Catherine on the hand because he could not allow himself to go further. A day or two later, the court moved on to Gainsborough, which was 18 miles from Lincoln. It's unclear where Catherine and her household stayed during this visit, but author Gareth Russell believes it could have been Gainsborough Old Hall, the home of the old Lord Burr. Local legend says that the king and his queen slept in the upper bedchamber of Gainsborough Old Hall's tower. While it's likely that the queen stayed there, it is highly unlikely that the royal couple shared a room. After spending a few days in Gainsborough, they were off to Scrooby and then Hatfield. It was at Hatfield that Catherine's lady, Margaret Morton, later stated that she saw Catherine look out of her chamber window onto Master Culpepper after such short that I thought there was love between them. Morton did not report anything, but instead made yet another mental note of the Queen's behavior. 
The court stayed at Hatfield for roughly five days before moving on to Pontefract Castle, which would be their longest stop in the progress. By this time, it was nearing the end of August, and the royal couple had been on progress since the end of June. It was noted that the queen, at this point, was not adjusting well to all the traveling. I'm certain she'd never experienced anything like it in her lifetime. It was said that she was tired and jumpy. Whether it was her tiredness or the thought of seeing Culpepper that had her jumpy, she was shouting orders at her servants and upsetting them. She wasn't acting herself. At one point at Pontefract, the Queen yelled at Margaret Morton and Maud Lufkin after suspecting that they were spying on her. It probably didn't help Catherine's nerves either when Francis Derham showed up unannounced on the 25th of August. It seems that whatever promises were made by the Queen, Dowager Duchess, Countess of Bridgewater, William Howard and his wife Margaret at the beginning of her reign, to Derham had not been delivered. Derham had an argument with the Dowager Duchess about it, after which she supposedly threw him out. We don't know that for certain, but what we do know is that he demanded a place in Catherine's household. Catherine had to think on her toes. She needed to find a way to appease this ticking time bomb, but her household was full. After having a private meeting with Derham, she introduced him to the rest of her staff as her gentleman usher. Being the thorn in her side that he was, Derham continued with the boasting and bad manners, something that would haunt them all later and cost Derham his life. During their long stay at Pontefract, Thomas Culpepper spent an increasing amount of time together with Catherine in her rooms until he had to leave to undress the king at night, at which he would, some nights, return. A new habit formed for the queen while at Pontefract Castle, she began to lock her doors to her bedroom at night, only giving access to Lady Rochford. Maud Lufkin got into trouble with the queen again when she attempted to enter the queen's bedroom one night. She either forgot the door was locked or was suspicious of the queen's behavior. Catherine was so upset with her that she threatened to remove both Lufkin and Morton. It wasn't only Maud Lufkin who tried to get into the queen's rooms, but also a servant to the king. He had a message for Catherine from Henry. The servant found the door locked and left. He hadn't thought twice about it until later. The love triangle of Henry, Catherine, and Culpepper was briefly separated when the king left to inspect the northern port of Hall in early to mid-September. Upon the reunion, Catherine started up their late-night meetings yet again. At one of these meetings, she begged Culpepper not to confess what they had been doing to a priest because she believed her husband, as the head of the Church of England, would be able to hear his confession in real time. Culpepper promised her he would not tell a soul, not even a priest. After the long progress, Catherine returned to Hampton Court Palace on the 28th of October, 1541. In only a couple days, her world would begin to change. The Queen continued to take risks in order to see Thomas Culpepper after arriving back at Hampton Courts. This shows the infatuation Catherine had with her beau. Before too long, she would never see him again. Thomas Cromner, Archbishop of Canterbury's official London residence, had become Lambeth Palace. It was there that he accepted the audience of a man called John Lascelles. What came from this conversation was not what Cromner expected. Lascelles came with the news that he had heard from his sister Mary Lascelles, now Mary Hall, about Queen Catherine's behavior. 
Hall was once a servant of the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk and lived in the same household with Queen Catherine when she was a ward there. John LaSalle stated that he had recently encouraged his younger sister to petition for a position in the Queen's household. But Mary Hall said that she would not feel comfortable having a mistress whose morals were lacking and who was light both in living and conditions. When LaSalle naturally pressed his sister for more information, she told him of the Queen's past romances with both Henry Mannix and Francis Derham. To prove that this was true, he repeated what his sister had told him, but possibly in a more delicate way. Mary had approached Mannix, as we covered in the last podcast, and informed him that he could not have a future with Catherine due to his status. This is where Hall told her brother that Mannix informed her that he had seen a very private part of Catherine's body and would recognize it easily. After John LaSalle's heard this story from his sister, he chose to discuss it with friends to help decide what he should do with the information. The consensus was to bring said information to the Privy Council. This was when LaSalle's paid the visit to Cromner at Lambeth. This entire matter was extremely delicate for anyone near the king who may have known of the queen's past. It would all have to be dealt with very carefully. Cromner decided, most likely for fear of wrath of the king, to leave a note for him to read after the mass for all souls. After reading the note, King Henry did not have the initial reaction that was expected of him. His biggest concern was in finding the truth in the story, not to lock up the queen, who remained in her apartments, utterly clueless, for the rest of the day. The king either hoped or believed it was all a big misunderstanding. It did not take long before the Privy Council began to interview witnesses. At the top of the list was John LaSalle's and his sister Mary Hall. The Earl of Southampton, a member of the King's Privy Council, began with John LaSalle's, and the following day, the Earl of Sussex stopped at the home of Mary Hall. To stop rumors from spreading back to court where those involved in the accusations could find out, Sussex and some other men disguised their stop at the Hall home as a place to rest on their journey from hunting. Eventually, Sussex was able to get Mary alone to inform her that the hunting trip was a ruse, to keep this matter as private as possible. He asked Mary if she would stand behind her words, at which she declared she would. After the confession of Mary Hall, Risley and Cromner examined Henry Mannix at Lambeth. Mannix said that he was appointed to the service of the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk about five years earlier. He fell in love with Catherine, and she with him. Unfortunately, their so-called fairy tale was interrupted when the lady of the household found them alone together. Cromner and Southampton proceeded to ask Mannix if he had any displeasure with Francis Derham. Mannix stated that Derham also loved Catherine, and Edward Walgrave, who loved a maiden named Baskerville, used to visit her there until about 2 or 3 in the morning. So he wrote an anonymous letter to the Duchess, warning her that if she would rise half an hour after going to bed and visit the gentlewomen's chamber, that she would be displeased. The Duchess did as he said and was furious with the girls. Sometime afterwards, Catherine had become suspicious of this letter that informed the Duchess and stole it from her room. She showed it to Derham, who suspected Mannix to have written it, and called him a knave. Mannix, during the interrogation, also said that Joan Bolmer, who was Catherine's bedfellow, had also been entertained by Derham. Mannix continued on by listing more witnesses to the happenings in the Dowager Duchess's household. 
Dorothy Dobby, then Chamberer, Catherine Tilney, now Chamberer with the Queen, Edward Walgrave, servant to Prince Edward, Mary Lascelles, and Malin Tilney, widow, can speak of the misrule between Derham and Catherine. After the Mannix interrogation, the men moved on to Francis Derham, who was already in custody. They had to be careful about removing Derham from the Queen's household without causing suspicion. They based the questioning, in public, on the reinvestigating of earlier claims of piracy on his part during his time in Ireland. They began by asking him what had sent him to Ireland in the first place and what made him return. The men were already aware that his position in the Queen's household was under suspicious circumstances. Francis told the men that he had been invited to the Queen's chambers, was given gifts, and was told to take heed what words you speak. Derham also confessed to have known Catherine carnally many times during their time at the Dowager Duchess's home. He went so far to recall a time that he was in his doublet and hose between the sheets with Catherine, and there were witnesses to their lovemaking. It wasn't only the men from her past that were questioned, but also the women. Her aunt, Margaret Howard, who was all too aware of her past, as well as Catherine Tilney, who had shared a bed with Catherine when there were wards. Catherine's aunt slyly told the men that she had suspected a relationship between Derham and her niece, but that's as far as she went with it. Catherine Tilney helped to confirm the words of Mary Hall and Francis Derham when she was questioned. On the 16th of November, the men visited the king to fill him in on what they had learned. This moment would have been nerve-wracking for them as well. To displease the king was terrifying, and they wouldn't want to be punished for telling him what had happened. Once the entire story had been told, Henry sat there quiet for a while, until eventually he began to cry. Immediately following, the Duke of Norfolk was called to court, as well as the Duke of Suffolk. Once the men had arrived, secretive council meetings took place, not to cause alarm at court. Unfortunately, it did not take long for gossip to start after Norfolk was seen leaving a meeting noticeably shaken. At this point, nobody had suspected that this was all related to the Queen. We'll end our podcast there for today, and we'll finish off the story next week in part four. I'm sorry it's taken so long, but there is just so much to tell. So I want to once again thank all of you who are patrons on Patreon. If you're interested, you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com and click become a patron. For as little as a dollar per month, you can become a member of my podcast family. Thank you so much and see you again next week.